0: Well, good morning. You know, I was just thinking as we were singing this morning that uh, I think we just sang my sermon for this morning over the course of the, the sixth songs. so maybe we can just pray and go home. But uh, I did prepare something, so we might as well uh, go through it. Actually, I'm, I'm excited about uh, what God has been teaching me and excited to be able to share that with you this morning. So if you would, please turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 13 through 16 this morning. Normally, I... Uh, I spend my Sunday mornings. I get to teach the high school group, so it's a uh, it's a privilege this morning. Though, while Mike and his family are on vacation, to be able to share with you this morning. Um, and as you find 1 Peter chapter one and verses verse thirteen, if you would, please stand as we read those verses together. Starting in verse thirteen, Peter says, "Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit." Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, "You shall be holy, for I am holy, and God we just come before you this morning and uh, recognize this great call that you have called us to to be holy and God, I pray that you would speak through your word and that you would uh, change us this morning even as we have sung, and uh, God, that we would leave today more conformed to the image of your Son, and we pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, this says, be holy as I am holy, God speaking to us, and uh, I don't know about you, but I have a, I have a hard time with that. There's a, there's a kind of obscure song that I really like, um, and the chorus of the song asks the question, what does it mean to be holy when everything's wrong? And every time I hear that, I think, I don't know if I quite understand what it means to be holy when everything's right, let alone when things are wrong in my life. It seems like sometimes this call to holiness, it's, it's, it's too lofty of an ambition. And we struggle and we, we, we try to live holy lives, but we fall short so often and it can be frustrating. But we know that we're called to holy lives and so we struggle and we fight through that. Many of you know I, uh, I like to run. I spend a lot of my time, um, my free time running these days. And on my runs, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about life. What's going right? Where am I falling short? Um, where am I making mistakes in my life? How does God want me to live? And my mind usually gets flooded with all these images of where I've screwed up, where I've fallen short, where I know that I, I uh, haven't been what I know that God wants me to be. And I, I kind of have these real... Um, intimate times, if you will, with God sometimes when I'm running uh, by myself. And uh, I also have this, this habit of talking to myself while I run, which can be somewhat of a dangerous thing, especially when you have an iPod in your ear and you don't realize how loud you're talking. And uh, one time recently, I was running down the street, and I was running by a neighbor's house, and uh, this lady was out in front of her house, and she was watering her lawn with a hose. And I'm, ha- I'm running, and I'm talking to myself, and I'm having all these thoughts going through my mind, and I'm I'm thinking of some areas where I've, I, I, some things specifically where I just screwed up recently and, and I was kind of yelling at myself a little bit. And just as I passed by her, I said, probably a little too loudly, what are you, stupid? And her eyes got really big and she's looking at me and, and, I, and I quickly try to explain, no, I'm talking to myself, really? And, and that didn't really go over very well, so I just ran faster and kept going. Um, but you know, I understand the frustration of falling short of holiness. And uh, I'm sure I'm probably not the only one that that talks to themselves where we know that we fall short and kind of give ourselves a lecture and, and uh, go through that. You know, I can really identify with uh, with Paul in Romans 7 when he he talks about, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I do want to do. And just that you can really see the conflict going on inside of Paul and that frustration that he's working through. But I love what he says in verse 18. He says, but the wishing is present in me. He says, the wishing, the longing is present in me to do what's right, to to live rightly before God. And I can really relate to that. And uh, I would imagine that many of you can relate to that as well. I think that we struggle with this call to live holy lives because, in large part, we don't always understand what holiness is let alone why we should live holy lives or how we should go about doing that. And those are the three questions I'd like to look at specifically this morning within the context of 1 Peter chapter 1. What is holiness? Why should we live holy lives? And how do we go about doing that? So let's start with looking at this question of what is holiness. And as we look here in verse 15, we have the call, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. This word holy literally means, as many of you probably know, it means to be set apart. The idea here is to be set apart from the world, that, uh, that we're to uh, to be pure, to be clean, to be righteous, that there's to be a difference of God's people compared to the rest of the world. And uh, Peter says that here in, the, in a positive sense in verse 15 when he's saying that we're to be holy like the Holy One. But right before that, in verse 14, he gives a negative contrast. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. He says negatively, we're not to be conformed to the world. In other words, we're not to be like the world, but we are, we're, we're to be set apart, we're to be separate, and we're, we're to be holy, we're to be pure, we're to be clean, we're to be righteous. This idea of. Uh, of not being conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. This word lusts refers to passionate desires, evil longings, or the appetites that we have for the world. And he's saying, don't be like you used to be. Don't be like you were in your former life, before you were a believer. You've been changed, and live a set-apart, different, changed life. And I think of Romans twelve two, that says, um, actually, if you want to turn over there just for a second. Romans chapter twelve. We're going to be kind of flipping back and forth between Romans twelve and First uh, Peter one here this morning. But you know, in Romans twelve two it says, "And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind." Again, there's that idea that we're, we're to be conf- we're to be transformed, we're changed, we're different, and as a result, we should be living different lives, set apart lives. I think uh, a couple of weeks ago we were riding in the car, and uh, all three of our kids were in the back seat, and um, Seth started complaining a little bit that his, he said that his heart hurt. And uh, Isaac, Seth is five years old, for those of you who don't know, and Isaac, who is seven, gave his quick, um, the lid is on the projector as well, you can't get it to, oh, Oh, okay. I thought that was, um, so Seth is five years old and he says, my heart hurts. And and Isaac is quick to give his diagnosis and he says, you must be having heart palpitations, we need to get you to the hospital. (laughs) And, I'm not sure where he picked that up, but then Abby gave maybe a more accurate diagnosis. She says, no, Seth, you have Jesus in your heart, and he's moving things all around and stretching it out, and that's why your heart hurts. And I thought, you know, there's something accurate about that, that uh, when Jesus comes into our lives, when he comes into our hearts, that he moves things around, and he stretches things around, and it's going to hurt sometimes, but he's going to make us exactly who he wants us to be, And, and in the course of doing that, we're going to be different. We cannot be the same people as we were before. And he, uh, he's going to transform us. He's going to change us. Well, we see also here in, uh, in Peter, as he defines what is holiness, he sets the standard for holiness. And uh, we see the standard is set as God himself. And God is the one actually um, setting the standard. We see that uh, he says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. We're to be holy because God is holy. God has called us to be holy um, and to be like Him, John MacArthur has said, "We cannot be holy as we cannot be as holy as God is, but we can be holy because God is." And I think that that's very true. That uh, we're called to be holy. We can't be as holy as God actually is, but because He is, He has called us to be holy, and we can be formed in His image and be holy. Ephesians four one says that we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Our calling is to be like Christ, to be holy. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created for good works. He made us to be righteous. And Ephesians five one says that we're to be imitators of God who is holy. So we're to be imitating God. We're to be holy. That God sets the standard. That is to be the course that we're striving for in our lives. But then we see that the source of our holiness is from the Holy Spirit. If you go back to verse 2 here in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. But he says, he says, um, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes into us and changes us. He's the one that makes us holy and we know that we can't be holy in and of ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5 um, says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The Holy Spirit comes into us and makes us a new creature. Again, this idea that we're to be holy because we're a new creation. God has made us something new. We have the God of the universe dwelling inside of us. And we have to ask the question, is it possible for God to live inside of us and not to make a difference in how we live? We have to be careful, though, as we understand that God is the only true source of holiness that we could have, that we don't fall into the error of legalism. And that we don't get caught up in the trap of saying, I have to follow these rules and I have to do these things and not do these other things. And and we get caught up in trying to earn or demonstrate our holiness by following all these rules and guidelines. And we forget that our most righteous acts are as filthy garments before God. And that it's only what he does through us that we can be holy. We can go to the other extreme as well. Um, And uh, we can look at, uh, at being licentious. In our approach and saying, well, God's grace is enough to cover everything. So God is going to make me holy uh, positionally, so I don't need to worry about living my life and doing the right things before him. God's grace is going to cover that. I have freedom in Christ. Well, it's true that we do have freedom in Christ. But sometimes we get carried away with that idea a little bit, and, uh, or sometimes a lot bit. And this freedom that we have, I believe, speaks directly to what uh, Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2 when he says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead. We didn't have any ability to honor God, to please Him, to live lives rightly before Him. And He has made us alive in Christ. When He makes us alive, He gives us freedom that for the first time, we can actually live lives that would be honoring to God, that would be pleasing to God. And yet we choose to abuse that freedom sometimes and say, oh, God's grace will cover. And, And we are more focused on pleasing our own desires rather than pleasing the Lord. And freedom in Christ is about using our freedom to please God rather than fulfilling our own passions and our own desires. So that's a kind of an overview of what holiness is. Holiness is this idea of living pure, living a set apart life, living different from the world. But now we look at uh, why we are called to holiness. And look back at uh, chapter 1 and verse 14. Peter says, "As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance." This wording here in uh, in verse fourteen is really interesting. That uh, that Peter says the word to be children of obedience. Do you think about that? The picture here is that obedience is the parent, and we're children of obedience. We're we're the we're the children of of uh, of obedience in the sense that we bear a resemblance to obedience, that we look like obedience. That our character is marked by obedience and that uh, we are called to live holy lives because we are the children of this parent, of this parent obedience. This is contrasted with Ephesians 2.2 that refers back to, it says, when you were not saved, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So we have this contrast here, that as believers, we're children of obedience. But before you were saved, you were a a child or a son of disobedience. There's this contrast between believers and, and unbelievers, between obedience and disobedience. The defining characteristic of a believer, then, is that there is a pattern in their lives of obedience, that we obey, and that obedience leads to holiness. Now, if you're like me, you're sitting there saying, I don't obey all the time and like I have experienced in my runs and lots of other times in my life, I realize I fall short, I screw up, I make mistakes, I sin. I don't have that, um, that constant level of obedience, that constant level of, of holiness. And yet my prayer is that um, God in his, in his grace in my life would uh, would would control my life and would produce a pattern of obedience in my life. One theologian um, made reference to this and said that the struggle is that our obedient nature is incarcerated in the flesh where there's sin. So we have an obedient nature, we're, we're children of obedience, but this obedience is incarcerated in our flesh. We're gonna talk a little bit uh, here in a few minutes about what we do about that. Um, but we understand that, that one of the primary reasons that we're called to be holy is because it's our characteristic, it's our nature. As children of obedience, we should reflect that which is our parent and then, secondly, going back to uh, to verse thirteen, Peter says, "Therefore." And this, the high schoolers know. I love the word "therefore" in uh, in the Bible. There's so much that you can capture in a word "therefore," and uh, I think that Peter says a whole lot in the word "therefore" right here about why we should be obedient or why we should be holy. All of chapter uh, one, leading from verse one up to through verse twelve is a description of this great salvation that we have in Christ. And uh, it's interesting that the first 12 verses, all of the verbs in the first 12 verses are all in the indicative tense. They're in 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 a verb tense that's stating what is. It's describing our obedience, or I'm sorry, describing our salvation. And then starting in verse 13, there's a transition made, and the verbs following, starting in verse 13, are all in the imperative tense, in the command tense. And we have the word therefore that's connecting the, 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 the statements of what is to what we should be and what we should do. And Peter spends a great deal of time here making comment and reminding the readers as to what kind of a great salvation that we have. Let's look at a few of those verses. Starting in verse 1, Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See that Peter's reminding them. He says that God has caused us to be born again, that God has chosen us. Peter is essentially saying that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, while we were sons of disobedience, while we were enemies of God, as Paul says in Romans 5.10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. While we were at war with God, God caused us to be born again. Now, if, there isn't, if there's anything to rejoice about in the world, if there's anything to, to, uh, to exult about in the world, it's that fact, that we were at war with God, we were an enemy with Almighty God, and God caused us to be born again. He called us to himself. And this salvation that he's given to us, this salvation that he's granted, look at verse 4. It says to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We've been saved while we were at war with God, while we were sons of disobedience. We've been saved to a salvation that is an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled is not going to be not going to fade away. We have as believers a reservation in heaven that can't be canceled. And God has granted that to us in his mercy and in his grace. We have a salvation that says in verse 7, that is more precious than gold. And Peter is saying all this, reminding the Christians as to what kind of a salvation that, that we have. And then he says, therefore. He says, therefore, based on this great salvation that you have, here's how you're to respond. Respond. This holiness that we're called to is a response to this great salvation. We owe God holiness. You ever think about that? We, that's, we owe him holiness. We can't earn our salvation, but as it says in Romans 12:1, that we're to be living sacrifices. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him pick up his cross and follow me. We're to crucify ourselves so that he can live in us. That we don't have the ability to live holy lives In and of ourselves, so we have to continually be crucifying our flesh, putting to death our flesh, so that God can live in us and that He can live what is truly holy through our lives. We're His children; we bear His name. This quote from verse fifteen—I'm sorry, verse sixteen—where Peter says, "Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." That's written. Actually, if you want to make a note, this is an interesting study to to do on the side, if you'd like, is from Leviticus eleven forty-four. And in Leviticus 11.44, God says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. Now God is saying this in the midst of one command after another that he's giving to the Israelites throughout the book of Leviticus. And he's giving one law after another. It's verse after verse after verse. This is what you should do. This is what you should do. This is what you should do. And then in the middle of this, he says, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. And then he goes on in chapter 18 of Leviticus, in chapter 20, in chapter 21, in chapter 22. And over and over and over again, he's giving laws and commands to the Israelites. This is how you should live. And at the end of each one, he says dozens of times, For I am the Lord your God. God is making it abundantly clear to the Israelites in that passage throughout Leviticus that you are to follow these laws, you're to do these things, you're to be holy because I am the Lord your God. I am holy and therefore you should be holy. God is saying, you are my people. I'm a holy God and I can't be identified with unholy people. Therefore, I'm calling you to be holy. I am the Lord your God. Be be holy as I am holy. And we as Christians, we bear his name. We walk around calling ourselves Christians. We're bearing the name of Christ. And, and uh, Peter is saying here in uh, in First Peter chapter one, we're to be holy because we're bearing the name of Christ. We are His representatives, and He has called us as a holy God to be holy. So we've discussed the the uh, the what is holiness, and the why. We're, we're, the why is essentially it comes down to we're children of obedience. We've been given a great salvation, and as a result, we owe God. Holy living. So then the big question, the big question that I struggle with is how do we actually do that? How do we get through this life that we are fighting with our, our flesh and, this, and the sin in our lives? And how do we do that? And uh, Peter here in, in uh, verse 13 gives us three steps in how we go about living holy lives. And basically what we have here is we have two commands that are kind of subcommands. That leads to a third kind of overarching command, and we're going to unpack this a little bit and see if we can uh, put it back together. But Peter says there in verse thirteen, "Therefore, gird your minds for action." And there's the first the first command that we have: the word "gird" our minds for action. How many of you have used the word "gird" in the last week? Uh, it doesn't come up too often. Um, this idea of girding means to tie down or to gather up, and to gather up and to tie down. Um, if you remember in, in Bible times. People wore these long flowing robes and when they needed to run someplace or they needed to go into battle or they needed to move quickly, they would gird their robes, they would tighten their belt and a lot of times they would even fold up the bottom of, the, of their robe and tuck it into the belt and then tighten that up, cinch it down, uh, tie down all the flowing pieces of their robe and make it much more uh, easy for them to be able to, to move quickly and to run. And, and this is the picture that, uh, that Peter is giving, he says, gird your minds for action, tie down the loose ends of your mind, in other words. We get lazy with our minds and it takes work to tie down our minds. But this is what Peter is saying. That we, should, we need to tie down all these loose thoughts. Tie, don't, don't be lazy with your mind. Don't let your mind just wander all over the place. But be intentional about what you think about. Tie down these loose ends. Minds that go free will wander where they shouldn't. They become controlled by the flesh. James refers to people who are double, double-minded and he says they're unstable in all their ways. And in contrast, Paul tells the Corinthians that we're to be immovable and steadfast, and that comes from having a disciplined mind. We're called to have discipline in our minds. And again, this takes work to bring our minds under control, and we tend to be, tend to be lazy with, with what we let our minds do. You say, Work, I don't, I'm not supposed to work for my salvation. It's a free gift. There's, what's with this, this work? Well, Paul's not afraid to, uh, to talk about work. Paul says, Obviously, we can't earn our salvation but we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're called to run the race with endurance. Paul, Paul says that he buffets his body, that, that Paul works to bring his flesh into submission to the will and the control of God. And that's, that's the work that we have to do. We have this, this battle going on in our lives as believers between our flesh and the Spirit, and we have to continually be working to put to death our flesh so that the Spirit can control us. But we have to be again careful about how we work, not in a legalistic way that we 're following rules, but uh, but again, just working to bring ourselves into submission to the Lord. Remember back in uh, in Romans chapter twelve one where uh, where Paul says, "I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship." We're to be a living sacrifice, this picture again of putting to death our flesh on a continual basis, and we sacrifice our will to the Lord. We allow Him to control us. But it doesn't just say, and I've, I've missed this in the past, I always get focused on the call to a being a living sacrifice. But What does it say? That we're, we're to be a living and holy sacrifice, that the sacrifice of our flesh, the sacrifice of our will is intrinsically tied to living a holy life and to being holy. And that apart from sacrificing ourselves, we can't be holy. And notice what it says here that we, if we follow in, in Romans 12 to verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's usually as far as I get in my thinking as well. Don't be conformed, be transformed. Okay, not conformed, be transformed. I can go back and forth on that. But we miss this part sometimes, I think, by the renewing of your mind. That again, there's this renewing of our mind, bringing control to our mind, bringing discipline to our mind that is an essential part of living a holy life. And I think this is because our minds are the gateway to our will. That to be a living sacrifice, we need to submit our wills to the Lord. And in order to do that, we need to control our minds, to control what our, what our minds think about, to be disciplined with our minds. We're to gird our minds for action. And to do that, we need to guard what comes into our minds. We think about, uh, you know, what do we expose our minds to? What do we expose our thinking to? You know, what, do we, what do we listen to? What kind of music do we listen to? What do we watch? What do we read? Where do we go? What do we expose ourselves to and, and where do we go? You know, not to get into it, onto a tangent, but even uh, we should guard what we say. I have uh, a lot of high schoolers have asked me, um, what's the big deal with profanity? And uh, they say, it's just words, It's just sounds. What's, what's the big deal? But we engage in and we embrace the profane. We're allowing the coarseness of the world to permeate our minds. We're allowing that into our minds. We're lowering the drawbridge of our minds to allow that which is vulgar to have a place in our thinking. And holiness demands that we guard our minds against such an invasion. This isn't about legalism or isolationism. I can, I can hear and I know that... Uh, People will say sometimes, well, I need to be this way or I need to be th- that way so I can reach this people or those people. And it's part of my ministry. It's my outreach. I need to talk in this way. It's, it's, it's part, of the, part of the outreach. And they say, look, look at Jesus. He spent his time with the, with the prostitutes and with the Pharisees and the tax collectors. And he, he spent his time with the, the people who were sinners. And, uh, you know, I would look at that and, and uh, Jesus did. And we should. We shouldn't be isolated. But at the same time, Jesus never compromised to those people. He never conformed himself to them. He called them to conform to what he was like. So how do we gird our minds? We, we guard what we expose our minds to, and then we focus our minds on the right things. Uh, we just did a study in the high school group on uh, uh, Philippians, and uh, if you turn over to Philippians chapter 4, Paul gives instructions specifically to what we should be thinking about, what our minds should be focused on. So, on the one hand, we guard our minds, but secondly, we're to think on the right things. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. I ask the question of myself and of all of us um, think back over the last week. How well does that describe your thought life over the last week? Can you say that your thoughts were focused on that which was true and honorable, what was right, what was pure, what was lovely, what is of good repute? Did you think on things of excellence and things worthy of praise? Did your mind dwell on those things? That's where the focus of our mind should be. I think too often we're pumping the garbage of the world into our minds, or we just get too lazy and we don't bring control to our minds. And... uh, you know, I wonder sometimes, when was the last time that I actively, intentionally focused on what I was thinking about? You know, no wonder we struggle with issues like anxiety, stress, anger, lust, impatience. No wonder that sometimes we lack contentment, joy, self-control, love. Our minds aren't focused on the right things. We allow the garbage of the world to permeate what's in our minds, and it's the result of letting our minds dwell on the wrong things. Or from another perspective, we're not dwelling on On the right things. And Peter is saying here, you want to live a holy life? First of all, gird your mind for action. Bring discipline to your mind. Colossians 3 says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. We're to fix our mind on the things above. You know, this is exactly the opposite of the thesis of the best selling book in the world right now, The Secret, which is based on this whole idea of the law of attraction. Think on what it is that you want, what's going to fulfill your needs, your desires, your passions. Think on that long enough, hard enough, specifically enough, and it will come to you. You'll get that. And Peter is saying, no, focus on God. Focus on your your mind on Him. Get your mind off of yourself, and then God God is going to bless you in His way, and it's going to be abundantly beyond anything that you can imagine or consider. Fight your fleshly desire to focus on yourself. So Peter says, gird your minds for action. And secondly, here he says, back in 1 Peter 1, 13, he says, keep sober in spirit. This word, this this phrase, be sober in spirit, literally means don't be drunk. But figuratively, I think Peter is saying here, we're not to be intoxicated with the world. We're not to want to be like the world. We're not to be in love with the things of the world. Understanding, as uh, Peter said in in, uh, chapter 2, In verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. We're to recognize that we're aliens and strangers, that uh, that we're not to love this world. We're to recognize that our home is not of this world. We're not to belong to the things of this world. So don't act like you love the things of this world. One theologian said, this refers to spiritual self-control, clarity of mind, being in charge of priorities and being disciplined in heart and mind. So essentially, Peter is saying here, he's saying, tie down your mind and live a disciplined life. Well, what about those, uh, those gray areas, those areas that aren't specifically prohibited in the Bible? I, I find myself oftentimes falling into the trap of, uh, of asking the question, Rather than saying, or asking the question, is it allowed? Is it prohibited? Does the Bible say I can't do this? Well, if it doesn't, well, if I, as long as I don't feel too convicted about it, I, maybe I can go and do that. And that's, the, and that's my starting point, is to say, can I do this? Okay, if, I, if nothing says I can't, then maybe I, maybe I can go do that. Maybe our first question, rather than saying, is it allowed? It should be, is this going to make me holy? Is this going to take me further along the steps of being holy as God has called me to be holy? And shouldn't we first think from that perspective? You know, there's a lot of things in this world that, uh, that we can enjoy that maybe don't seem spiritual on the surface, but they can, it can be a, a reflection of our delighting in the Lord and is appropriate to do, and uh, we don't need to over-spiritualize everything. But there are many things that if we're honest, while it may not be blatant sin, to us, it's more about identifying with the world than identifying with the Lord. And we allow that to creep in. We, that we, in, in, in the smallest of ways, we allow ourselves to want to be identified with the world. And we, we take actions that identify ourselves with the world. Peter is saying, be sober in spirit. Don't be intoxicated by the world. Don't try to walk the line as closely as you can without crossing the line. You know, sometimes we can live lives and we say, you know, I'm not going to be drunk with the world. We don't maybe think in those terms. But we say, Maybe it's going to be okay if I get a little buzzed. And uh, we allow ourselves to just walk right up to that line. And and Peter's calling us to say, be holy as I'm holy. Be set apart, be different, and don't allow yourself to be conformed to the world. So gird your mind for action. Be sober in spirit. Tie down your thoughts. Be disciplined in the way you live. And both of those ideas, to gird your mind for action and then to be sober in spirit, come to this, this overarching command that he gives, which is to fix your hope. We see here in verse 13, he says, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope is our attitude about the future. It's very similar to faith. It's the same substance as faith. Faith is present-based. I'm going to put my faith in what God is doing. Hope is future-based. I'm trusting God and believing God in the future. And he says that we're to fix our hope completely, perfectly, fully, without a doubt. It's subtle. Our hope is completely without any question, fixed. You know, hope is a, is a great thing for us. It lifts us above the mundane and it gives us purpose, but we have to recognize that's not why we hope. We don't hope for ourselves. We hope ultimately because it brings God glory. When we hope in Him, in the sense that uh, that. that Peter is using it. This is a a hope that's an assured hope, a hope that says, I know that God is going to do this. I can trust him. I am looking forward with with anticipation to what God is going to do. And when we hope in that way, we're affirming that he's trustworthy. And that gives God glory. And take a look at Romans 4 sometime if you'd like, how, how our trusting God, how our hope in him actually brings him glory. And we hope not because of what it does for us, as wonderful as that is, but we hope because it glorifies God. And it says that we're to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of jesus christ you know we first received grace um, when we were forgiven and saved that first time that moment of salvation but we forget sometimes that there's a grace to come there's more grace coming and that'll come when we're ushered into eternal life and we're spotless holy and clean before god and god just pours out his grace on us and this happens at the second coming of jesus I ask, do you think much about that grace that's to come? Do you consider much the grace that's still yet to come then God is going to pour out his grace and make us perfect, holy, spotless and bring us into eternal life? Do you, do you give much thought to that? We've experienced grace with our initial salvation, but now Peter's saying, look forward to the grace that's yet to come. Be excited about this grace. Fix your hope on the grace that is to come. We're to look forward to, we're to yearn for, we're to want more and more grace. John Piper put it this way, he said, how do we ever repay God? Answer, we ask for more and more. That's how we repay God. We honor Him, we glorify Him by asking for more grace. We say, God, I'm looking forward. My hope is fixed on the grace that's yet to come. My life is centered on the grace that is to come. And we honor God by asking, God, bring me that grace. I want that grace. God, that's the only hope I have in life is your grace. So we have an obligation to live our lives with our hope fixed on the grace that's to come in Jesus Christ. We're to live in light of the second coming, essentially, is what Peter is saying. We're to live as if Jesus was going to return today or tomorrow. If you knew for a fact that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, how would you live differently today? If you're like me, I think that it would be radically different And we're to live like that every day. That's what Peter is saying. The basis for living a holy life is to live like Jesus is coming back at any time. We're to gird our minds to do whatever it takes to focus our minds on this grace to come. We're to focus on Jesus' return. We're to prepare for his return. We're not to be intoxicated by the world. We're to be citizens of heaven, ready to go home at any time. We're to be expectantly waiting for Jesus' return. You know, back in uh, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11, God is giving directions to the Israelites regarding eating a meal at that very first Passover. Listen to what God says to them. He says, Now you shall eat it in this manner, it says, remember when they're in Egypt, just getting ready to leave. This is the very first Passover. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And what, uh, what Peter, I think, is saying in this idea of girding our minds fraction, it's the same idea. We're to, we're to gird our minds. We're to have our sandals on our feet, our staff in our hands. We're ready to go at any moment. When Jesus comes, We're ready. We're living our lives fully ready to go. This doesn't mean that we're sitting up on a roof and within our pajamas waiting for his return. We're, we're living our lives actively engaged in the world, but we're ready. We have our lives in order. We have our minds disciplined. We're not intoxicated by the world. We're ready for his return. So then the hard question for today is how do you feel about Jesus' return? Are you excited? Or do you kind of feel Blah. Maybe you even feel a little bit of dread, not not because of sin in your life, but you're thinking, you know, it'd be kind of an intrusion into my life if Jesus came back today. It'd mess up my plans. You know, if Jesus came back after my vacation, that'd be good. Maybe after I get married or after I've lived a full and complete life and I'm right at the end of my life and I'm, you know, right before I die, Jesus comes back then, yeah, that'd be good. You know, oftentimes we hope that Jesus doesn't come for a long, long time, don't we? We get caught up in this world. We love this world. And we say, not yet, Lord. We think this way because we have not allowed ourselves to be overwhelmed by the grace that God will pour out on us. If we were really consumed by what God has done for us, if we were consumed by what we owe to God by this great salvation that he's given to us, if we were consumed by what he had in store for us, We should be like a seven-year-old on Christmas Eve anticipating the the Lord's return. We should be excited and not be able to wait for his return. But we have our minds entangled in the world. We lose focus. We get intoxicated by the world. We're to fix our hope on his return. And that's the basis for holy living. As we get our minds in order, we avoid being intoxicated by the world. And all that points to, we fix our hope on the grace that is to come. We live in light of Jesus returning. The Apostle John was focused, as Pastor Mike referred to last week, he concludes Revelation by saying, Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. John was ready for Jesus to return. As we focus our hope on his return and the grace that's to come, that's what ultimately produces holiness. And just as we conclude this morning, I want to look at uh, two verses very briefly. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. John says, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when, he, we, that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, catch that he's saying your hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. When our hope is fixed on the Lord, when, our, when we're anticipating what he's going to be doing for us in the future, when we live our lives future based on what God is going to do, That's what makes us pure. And then over in Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Is that what you want? Do you want to live sensibly, righteously, and godly? looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. If you want to live sensibly, righteously, godly, for to be living holy lives as God was holy, as God has called us to live, we're to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Are you excited about Jesus' return? That's the basis of living a holy life. Be excited. Be looking forward. Put your hope firmly fixed on his return. God, I thank you so much for the call that you've called us to. God, that you haven't called us just to be like the world, but you've called us out. You've called us to be separate. You've called us to be set apart. And God, as frustrating as that is, is, as much as we struggle with our flesh, God, I pray that you would work in us and, and help us to focus our minds, to be disciplined in our minds, to be thinking on you. God, that we would not be intoxicated by this world, but that we would fix our hope completely and totally on you. And God, that as a result, our flesh would be put to death in us and that your spirit would reign. And and, uh, God, that you would work in us and that you would make us holy. And as a result, we could live lives that would be pleasing to you, not because of our own efforts, but because of what you do in us. God, we pray this in your name. Amen. Be praying for uh, Pastor Mike and family as uh, they go the next two weeks on their vacation. And uh, my prayer is that uh, we would all be able to focus our hope completely on the grace that is to come. Have a great day.